This is an ABC podcast. This is the WA Country Hour with Belinda Varischetti on ABC Radio WA. Hello there, great to have you along this afternoon. Shortly, Australian grain farmers could soon benefit from research using artificial intelligence and genetic engineering. Now, this project has certainly got the backing. It's a US-based company and it's managed to raise $875 million from the investors. You learn more about the project before the news headlines at half past 12 today. It is five past 12 here on the Country Hour on the ABC right across Western Australia, streaming live on the web and also on the ABC Listen app. Well, this year's first shipment of WA cattle to Indonesia is on the water. Another is scheduled to leave the port of Fremantle today and the first ship out of the north leaving Broome is scheduled for the first week of March. Now, the green light for these shipments came through last Friday when Indonesia issued the long-awaited live export trade permits, which will allow 650,000 head of Australian cattle to be exported to Indonesia this year. Andrew Stewart is the agent principal at Kimberley Livestock and Property. Andrew, how many WA cattle have been loaded onto the ships this week and making their way to Indonesia? Oh, look, I think one, one, one boat definitely has gone out of Fremantle. And I think another one's going today or tonight. So it's a relief, I think, for a lot of people. A lot of these exporters had cattle purchased on the prospects of normal run that you'd get permits sort of come, you know, early to mid-January. But to, to get them sort of early to mid-February was a, was a bit of a, a delay and one that the industry really didn't need because obviously things are a bit tight right across the board, especially in Western Australia with the dry. So, yeah, permits released. There was at least two, maybe three shipments of cattle down in Perth area that were ready to go and they've been sort of going out now. As I said, one or two have gone, but probably another one or two in the pipeline. Um, we've just taken on our first couple of boats up here, uh, which will happen, um, I believe, probably around the first uh, beginning or towards the end of the first week of March. So it's exciting that it's happening. It's uh, been an ordering wet, to say the least, up here in the north and it's sort of driven from Perth up over the last couple of weeks. And, yeah, it's yeah borderline disastrous, right? Literally from Perth up, it's uh, yeah, a pretty sad state of affairs. So... A positive for us up here, anyhow, that we can start getting cattle together and get, get things moving. And how does it compare, you know, when you think back to other seasons? When was the last time it's been like this? Oh, it's, you're trying to forget the bad times. But, um, I, look, I, 2016, I reckon, was pretty ordinary. But, you know, I've got a lot of places from Fitzroy Crossing on, very, very good, probably average to a bit better. But from the valley back this way, I... You know, there's there's some places that have only had sort of 100 and 120, 30 mils, which, you know, sounds great for down that way. Um, but, yeah, up here it's, you know, these, this is sort of three, four, 500 millimetre rainfall sort of country. So, yeah, everybody's, you know, got a surplus of cattle left over from last year um, because of poor market and no demand and all the rest of it. So we really do need to move quite a wedge of cattle this year and, you know, to get going nice and early, um, will be a bit of a relief for some people. Now, with the seasonal conditions in mind, Andrew, how much flexibility is there 
with the weight of the cattle to Indonesia because this market is usually looking for around that 270, 350 kilogram animal. But the season has been tough for many and so some of the cattle will be a little light. So is there an opportunity for those cattle to find a place on these ships? Oh, look, I think so. But I think initially because Ramadan's on so early, our indications are that the importers and Indo are looking for more sort of medium to um, medium slaughter weights, the heavy slaughter weight cattle to get in early. The system with the Ramadan, which starts more or less in the next week or so and runs through to early April. So the first focus for March is definitely for bigger cattle. And um, because a lot of them haven't, you know, literally haven't taken any permits, any cattle in since, uh, you know, just before Christmas, there is definitely going to be a balance. But we, we are going to have a lot of feeder type cattle especially in the, from the west kimberley um which will be sort of lightweight so yeah we'll, we'll be pushing that boundary on the 270 kilos and i don't know there'll be much appetite for those lighter feeders but that's what we've sort of got to look at or start working on really and then our next best bet because we won't get to go south too much with cattle i don't reckon um obviously darwin territory um queensland's had fantastic sort of summer rain and, and wet season rain so I would guess that a fair percentage of our lighter cattle would be going east this year. Right, okay. So what sort of weights are we looking for for Indonesia? Like first cab off the rank, that sort of March ship, what sort of uh, weight oh, are we looking at? I've got, I've, I've got a bit of a tender out at the moment just to try and find that very thing out actually. So, But look, traditional feeder weights are 270 to 370, 380 kilos. So that, that would be the, the, the general run of feeders. But for them to take feeder cattle under that, there hasn't been much of a desire uh, by Indo by any stretch for some time to take lighter feeders, sort of 250, 60, 70. So there's going to be a, a few cattle that might fall into that category, especially post-June this year. Late last year, there were issues raised about cattle with skin lesions, and we saw some new export restrictions on some Australian cattle yards by Indonesia. To what extent is that still an issue today? Look, even with the big fluff last year about it, we've been pretty focused up here for the, you know, it's it really raised its head probably two or three years ago. And we've we've just been very hard ourselves just on selecting whether it's us doing buying as on behalf of an exporter or exporters come with us. We, we make sure we do anything questionable gets done out on station and to save any headaches in town. I mean, the extreme that it went last year was knee-jerk reaction and whether it was market ploys or who knows, I, that's all for people above my pay grade. But anyhow, we've been focused on making sure that to minimise that, that issue. A lot of people are aware of it. They've been putting fly tags in cattle, sale cattle late last year to just reduce the fly bite and stuff like that. Normally you get sort of ringworm based on a very wet season and we certainly haven't had that. So it's that's not going to be an issue for us this year. So, yeah, look, it's business as usual and we just keep doing what we do before the, the cattle get to town to minimise any effects. 12 past 12. This is the Country Hour. Andrew Stewart is here today. He's the agent principal at Kimberley Livestock and Property and he's giving you an insight into the cattle export season, which is underway for 2024. It all started this week with a shipment of cattle to Indonesia. Andrew, to manage the dry seasonal conditions, some WA pastoralists are sending cattle across the border to the Northern Territory. How prevalent is that? I've done a, done a couple of mobs this morning uh, myself for clients. It's it's just 
because the, the season has been pretty ordinary in, in some parts. People are just, again, capitalising on the good season in the Territory, some reasonable adjustment rates and just moving cattle now while they can, as opposed to trying to do it um, a bit further down the track when cattle are either lighter or the market gets flooded with cattle. So it's probably a... Uh, a smart move, like you're moving the cattle towards the market at this point in time, or more importantly, towards the grass, because as I said, like a, we'd love to get a nice uh, early start autumn down there, really, with some rain coming on um, to take some relief out of the partial areas, but it just doesn't sort of look that way on the patterns that I've seen anyhow. So, Well, let's have a look at the prices then, the all-important prices. What, what's on offer for producers for, you know, the, the upcoming – well, the shipment's down Fremantle Way firstly. What sort of prices for those, the ones that have left and the ones um, still on the water? Look, it's – yeah, I, I don't – I'm not really across the, the southern pricing because I sort of stay out of that area because I get slapped on the wrist if I sort of start <laughs> down there. But look, it, it's – put it this way, it's, it's – the, the the west market would probably be the, the the lightest just you know there's been a lot of cattle sold on auctions plus last week there's a big store sale down at um, Shea tomorrow all these things put pressure on the market um, we we're hoping for eastern states influence on those sales and there has been to a degree the, the boat price down there is certainly yeah it's okay from what i understand and and the boat price from up here although it's it's obviously commercial information but it, put it this way it's it's at least sort of 30 30 percent better than where we finished off at the end of last year like it definitely it'll be a dollar a kilo so at least it's got a three in front of it which is what we're all hoping for and the, the question now is just to make sure we can hold it there and That'll all depend on the supply and the demand, obviously. So, but yeah, very, very strong start. So we're looking at $3 plus per kilo, roughly, ballpark figures yep. at the moment. And and that's better than, you know, how things, the market ended sort of towards the end of last year. But in a broader perspective, I mean, at the heady heights, we we're kind of looking at sort of six, you know, even touching $7 a kilo mm. at some point. I'd like to bring up the perfect, perfect, uh, perfect world partner. Yeah, look, we all knew it was ridiculous at the time, and we all took it and ran. And we we thought there was going to be a correction. Just nobody thought it was going to be the level. You know, the market literally halved overnight with the announcement of El Nino, and and then Indonesia with a few issues up there. So it was a combination of a lot of things. But you can see that eastern Eki market. It's it's lifting every sort of week. There's been a bit of a flurry in uh, cattle sales, and that's cause a reduction in the price over east in the last week or so but that's again it's just supply there's people capitalizing getting rid of cattle at good prices and it's just sort of flooded the market so i think the prospects short term and long term for cattle it's, it's definitely improving and yeah we're just looking forward to a, a normal season and if, yeah as i said if we can keep that price with a three in front of it for as long as we can but your other question was last year. I mean, we the last boats we were doing out of here were low twos. You know, we're at sort of two two tens and two twenties at the end of the season. And historically, you know, if you've got good cattle at the end of the season when nobody else has got them, you can demand a bit of a price. But that certainly wasn't the case last year. No. And then looking across the country, Andrew, how does that three dollar plus um, here in WA per kilo, what's the story over Queensland? Because that's sort of leading the market is the last I heard. What's the, what yeah, are the prices well, look, I don't know. I, th- I think slaughter prices, from what I understand, were sort of $3.10s and 15s over there at the moment. So, like, you know, we're, we're certainly on a par with that, which is good. The last thing you want to see is a disparity of sort of 20, 30 cents between that. Darwin has kicked off, I believe, the feeder price up there, sort of 
you know, three thirties or forties is what I was told. But again, I, you know, I'm just going off speculation. So, look, we're 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 not going to be far off the mark. I don't reckon. And you know, to be totally honest with you, at this point in time of the season, we've had we're just going to be taking and trying to market as many cattle as we possibly can while we can. So yeah. So looking ahead for the year, how would you kind of sum up how you're feeling about it? Uh, put an order in for another two cyclones to dump somewhere around three to 400 across the board up here. It'd be a brilliant uh, end of the season. But uh, because we are what we are, mate, we're very weather-focused and it does determine a lot of what we do. Um, last year, we just had a ridiculous wet, too much. I mean, we were still fighting fires. There's still fires. There were still fires burning in this West Kimberley as late as last week um, because there was such a massive feed and, and, and fuel still burning. Um, so we obviously gone past that and we've just gone from that extreme to the other. But just remember again, though, that from Fitzroy Easters have had an average to, to above average season. So, you know, that, that's that's a good portion of the Kimberleys that sort of covered. It's just, unfortunately, from the valley back, it's just a little bit ordinary. So, yeah, look, it's, we want to go hard. Um, we've got plenty of cattle to sell and yeah, hopefully the demand will keep going for both exports and for the store market. Andrew, great to talk to you. Thank you. Thanks, Belinda. Andrew Stewart, he's the agent principal at Kimberley Livestock and Property. Uh, talking about the cattle export season, which is underway this week with those permits coming through from Indonesia and a couple of shipments already on the water, basically heading, making their way to Indonesia. And Andrew also talking about the dry conditions in parts of the north of the state. It's a story that's very familiar through much of the state right now and a little later in the hour heading to the south coast of WA, just off the south coast in the Esperance Shire and talking about the conditions in that part of WA. Very similar story, very dry this season. 18 past 12. Let's stay in the Kimberley for a little bit longer because renewed plans to build one of the world's largest prawn farms on a Kimberley cattle station have been derailed by a federal court ruling. Sea Farms is the parent company of the ambitious $2 billion Project Sea Dragon. It's been in the federal court over a payment dispute with Construct, the contractor that managed work on the prawn grow-out facility at Lejeune Station north of Kununurra. Project Sea Dragon entered voluntary administration in February last year, following an order from the Royal Institution of Chartered Surveyors to pay the contractor $13.9 million of unpaid fees. A month later, Sea Farms announced the project had entered into a deed of company arrangement, a move that would limit the amount it would pay Construct to about 10% of the amount being sought. The court judgment today ordered a termination of this deed of company arrangement on the grounds it was being used to avoid its liability to construct, which would be in breach of the Corporations Act. The court ordered the project be wound up in insolvency. The orders are under an interim stay period in which Sea Dragon is is able to appeal which is able to appeal, I should say. Sea Farm's lawyer has told us, therefore, it is business as usual for the project until any appeal is determined. 20 past 12. The Country Hour with Belinda Varischetti on ABC Local Radio WA. An update from the newsroom shortly, around about half past 12, and then checking weather conditions 
right around the state. First, though, Australia's grain farmers could soon benefit from research using artificial intelligence and genetic engineering. And that's because a US-based company called Inari Agriculture has managed to raise $875 million from investors. CEO Ponzi Trivisvavet says that money will be used to fast-track the development of superior seed varieties. And the work they're doing on wheat is being done collaboratively with a Perth-based breeding company. We already have something very exciting um, in terms of soybeans. Yes, we have it coming along in terms of wheat, in terms of corn as well. So when you look at the type of products that we have that can radically improve the productivity for farmers, as I mentioned, that we're not targeting something that is 1x, 2x, 3x, but how you think about having the productivity that improve by 10x, 20x. It's not only about the food security, it's not only about the sustainability, um, but it's also about the farmer profitability. And when you look at this technology, when you look at this kind of product, you can address three things at the same time. Yes, that's the piece that um, they're pretty excited about it. So is the AI the key? Because in the old days, up until, well, a short while ago, the progression of the genes, the advancement of the various sort of wheat or soy varieties that people were growing, they were only improving a certain amount each year. Is the curve going going upwards like this? Is that what you're saying? Certainly, certainly, because um, in the history of uh, crop development, whether that would be soybeans or corn or wheat, the level of productivity increase is less than 1% a year. Right? And then some of them are actually coming from the agronomic practice. So arguably what is coming from the genetics alone is actually much less than 1% a year, which is um, certainly cannot cope with the, the food security and climate change that we want. So, and it can't cope with the rise of inflation. Farmers will tell you their costs are going up at a faster rate than that. Certainly, certainly. What they need more is essentially a much better productivity and what we are focusing on, what we are working on, these much better productivity crops do not take more inputs not more nitrogen fertilizer, not more land, not more water, and all these three things are pretty high fixed costs of farmers. So if you're at the stage where you're trying to be developing these new seeds, I gather it involves not only the use of AI, but also the use of gene editing. And that has its negative connotations for some people, for some people who are very keen to keep things as natural as possible, and they're worried about the unknown associated with the gene editing. How do you convince the investors that you're able to overcome that resistance? Let me explain more um, the part of the multiplex gene editing, what we do. In fact, um, it is the form of accelerating the natural breeding. Right? So everything that we touch when it comes to the gene editing, it is actually we touch only the existing species. For example, when we said we edit wheat, we touch only natural genes of wheat. Uh, we do not insert the new foreign gene, right? the like of bacteria. So therefore, what we do is what the nature is doing, but we don't have 100 years or 200 years to wait for it. And when you can actually do it to address the kind of climate change challenge, in fact, the farmers actually are asking for these kind of seeds in order to help with their, with their challenge. 
So how far away are you from being able to develop some seeds that farmers here in Western Australia can actually use? I noticed today you're collaborating with Intergrain, which is a Perth-based company. Right. Um, so this is um, coming up to our two-year anniversary um, that when we announced uh, the collaboration back two years ago. So where we are today now, only within two years, we already started to send the seeds um, to Intergrain. And it is actually in Perth, in Australia, in quarantine in the glass house as we speak right now. So think about it as two years, again, two years. The traditional breeding takes seven years or more. The GMO takes 15 years. Within two years, we have the first generation already here. So does that mean the farmers are, maybe things are not too far away around the corner, they're going to actually have it in the ground soon? Um, so Intergrain will do further testing in the glass house and further testing in, in the field, and then thereafter the farmers will be able to experience it in Australia. That's exciting. It is, certainly exciting, and uh, we're grateful with the partnership with Intergrain, who is uh, very visionary and think about the same vision as us. And one thing just that was in that panel discussion there, there's that topic of the ethical use of AI. Now, I mentioned at the start you have some admirable goals of increasing food production and doing it sustainably and, and trying to increase farmers' profits, I'd imagine. Or maybe, maybe that's a byproduct. <laughs> what else do you get accused of, though, to make sure that you're keeping your eye on the ball when it comes to the, the ethical use of AI? Um, we... Because we're so advanced in here and we are um, leading in this area, so it's responsibility for us. And that's why it is us who have to make sure that when we discover any new genes, we still go through the proper process of testing it in the greenhouse, in the field. Uh, we just don't launch it right away. And that's the only way that you can properly manage the knowledge of the AI and the application of AI that there's no other negative impact around it. Uh, we treat the AI responsibility the same way as we treat the sustainability, unless it it is creating significant impact on sustainability, we're not going to launch that product. Because yeah. it, it, it was mentioned today, you can adjust the algorithm simply to increase food production, can't you? But then you've got to tweak that algorithm if you want to increase food production sustainably. Um, exactly, that you, you actually have to think about the whole thing as the ecosystem. Um, so it's the same as genetics like us. When you touch one or two or three genes, it has an impact on how it interacts with the pathways of other genes, so you actually have to understand it. It's the same thing as ecosystem. When you launch something, you actually need to understand the ecosystem around it. So that's why the algorithm that we develop is quite unique, um, that everything is about linking with the network and the pathways of the genes. Ponsi Trivisvavet is the CEO of Inari Agriculture. She was speaking to Richard Hudson at the AgriFutures Evoke Ag Conference that's been on in Perth this week, and she's going to be one of the speakers at next week's GRDC Grain Research Updates Conference, which is also being held in Perth. 
28 past 12. Let's check in with the newsroom. Here's Jonathan Beale. Thanks, Belinda. The Premier says the government has listened to the community in relation to a crackdown on repeat offenders. Under the legislation to be introduced into Parliament today, extra powers will be given to the courts to categorise repeat offenders into an offending level which attracts jail time. Roger Cook says offenders should face jail time if they continually ignore the laws. WA politicians are calling on LNG producers to honour their commitments to the state's domestic gas policy or risk government intervention. The policy requires companies to reserve 15% of the gas they produce for the local market. The policy has been credited with keeping gas prices low and securing supply in WA. However, the interim report of a parliamentary inquiry has warned some companies are not upholding the spirit and intent of the policy. And Qantas Chief Executive Vanessa Hudson says the airline has seen a significant improvement in customer satisfaction despite a drop in earnings. The company has posted a 13% fall in post-tax profit to $873 million in the six months to December. Qantas has attributed the result largely to lower airfares following the post-pandemic peaks of late 2022. More news, Belinda, at one o'clock. Jonathan, thank you very much for that update. 29 past 12 here on the Country Hour. And between now and the news at one, off to... The south of the state, sort of just off the south coast of the state, but taking a real good look around the Shire of Esperance. Earlier in the hour, we already looked at the dry conditions further north, sort of in that West Kimberley, West Pilbara. I mean, there's so many parts of WA at the moment that could really do with some rain. But we'll spend a little bit of time in the Shire of Esperance and look at the conditions in that part. Because uh, as you heard on the Country Hour yesterday, uh, grass patch has just been declared water deficient, so we'll spend some time there. And also, Federal Member for O'Connor, Rick Wilson, will be here. He's been in Kalgoorlie, Boulder this week, and he's got quite a few thoughts on the crisis facing the WA nickel industry. We'll get to that shortly. In just a moment, heading off to the Bureau of Meteorology. Twenty-nine to one. Off to the Bureau of Meteorology now. Bob Tarr with you this afternoon. Bob, let's start in the north of the state and all eyes on that system that may deliver some good rain. Uh, yeah, good rain, probably uh, less good wind. Um, so yeah, that system is uh, to the northwest of Broome right now. It has moved offshore, so um, conditions are easing across the uh, Kimberley, but um, yeah, certainly looks like it's starting to re-intensify and 
officially it's forecast to re-intensify into a tropical cyclone, which would be, uh, again, named Lincoln, which is what it was named previously in the Gulf of Carpentaria, um, if it were to become a cyclone. Um, and, yeah, it's expected to become a cyclone uh, during tonight um, and then continue mov moving towards the west-southwest, so roughly parallel to the uh, Pilbara coast uh, during Friday. Uh, it could be as you said, some uh, decent rain, uh, mainly limited to the coastal fringe in the Pilbara tomorrow, um, around the uh, Dampier uh, region and uh, Karatha could see maybe up to uh, isolated, very isolated 80 in a thunderstorm, but more likely most areas 20 to 30 mils, uh, and then uh, 5 to 20 mils isolated up to about 50, uh, extending down uh, towards the Onzo area. Uh, again, this is uh, very coastal tomorrow uh, with the system still expected to be uh, pretty far offshore. And then uh, during the day or during Friday night, it'll start to recurve towards the southwest and uh, eventually southerly and uh, probably make a landfall somewhere around the Northwest Cape or potentially uh, miss the Northwest Cape and uh, the center passing inland around the uh, Gascoigne coast later on Saturday. But uh, it does look like the Northwest Cape is going to get some uh, pretty heavy rainfall associated with the system, regardless of whether the center crosses there. It is going to be on the eastern side of the system, which tends to have more of the moisture and, and also more of the wind. So uh, around that uh, West Pilbara uh, area and then extending into the western part of the Gascoigne. Uh, on Saturday, we'll be looking at anywhere from about uh, 60 to 100 mils with isolated falls up to about 180 mils and then uh, falls reducing as you go towards the um, south and east from the s system center and then uh, continuing to move uh, south on uh, Sunday, which I'll cover uh, in a little bit as we get into the Southwest Land Division. But um, yeah, basically around the Northwest Cape uh, and then the Western part of the Gascoigne, uh, there is uh, going to be tropical cyclone uh, watches. Uh, some are already posted, but uh, watches and eventually warnings are, are likely to be posted. And then um, th there is a risk of uh, some strong winds and, and certainly the rainfall is not gonna be uh, extraordinarily heavy. The system is moving reasonably quickly, but um, there is going to be uh, some, some pretty heavy rainfall that could cause some uh, issues on roadways around the area, um, especially around the Northwest Cape. Sometimes that road up to Exmouth can, can get bogged and, and certainly keep an eye on the Northwest Coastal Highway as well. So, uh, yeah, pastoral areas, uh, very beneficial rain, I would say. Uh, might be some short-term pain with uh, some flooding, but, but all in all, uh, it will deliver some, some quite beneficial rain to areas that haven't had much of it. I think yesterday, Bob, it was meant to be crossing the coast as a Category 2. Is that still what you're expecting? Yeah, so that's still the forecast. It doesn't look like the environment is uh, extraordinarily favourable for uh, strengthening, so it's not expected to strengthen too rapidly. Um, there is a, a chance that it could reach Category 3. It's a fairly small system, and it get, if it gets in a, a pretty good environment, it could strengthen a little bit more quickly. But, um, yeah, it looks like uh, somewhere between a Category 1 and a 3, with most likely scenario being a, a Category 2, which is uh, certainly some quite strong winds, but... Um, not as strong as it can get up in, in that part of the world. All right, let's move into the Southwest Land Division because it's not only the north uh, parts looking at this system and hoping for some rain, but it's further south as well, even as far south as the south coast. So what can we expect out of this system for the Southwest Land Division? Yeah, correct. So um, I guess I'll just start with uh, today, basically uh, pretty clear skies across the region. There's a trough that will develop down the 
west coast during uh, tonight and Friday. So that is going to bring uh, another blast of hot weather in through the Midwest, uh, many areas in the Midwest uh, surpassing 40 tomorrow, some places uh, into the mid or even uh, high 40s tomorrow. But that'll be short-lived. So it has been a very hot month in the Midwest, but um, the the rainfall associated with the system and that trough moving inland will um, certainly cool things off during the weekend. So on um, Saturday, uh, some uh, northern areas of the Midwest, so uh, basically to the north and east of uh, Calberry, uh, could see uh, 10 to 30 mils with isolated falls to around uh, 60 mils, and then extending uh, in through around uh, Morawa and then southward through uh, northern and eastern parts of the wheat belt. We, we expect to see on Saturday uh, 5 to 20 mils with isolated falls to 30 mils. And then uh, as the system moves inland and, and uh, weakens, so certainly the winds will be weakening, but there is still some potential for uh, damaging winds through um, maybe far northeastern parts of the Midwest uh, and southern parts of the Gascoigne. But uh, the main impact is going to be rainfall associated with that. So uh, from uh, inland from uh, Shark Bay, uh, extending down through uh, Payne's Vine and maybe just north of Delwallonew, looking at on Sunday uh, anywhere from about 40 to 70 mils with isolated falls to 120, and then extending to the uh, mainly to the south and east of there. So from about Calberry on uh, southward through uh, Meriden and down towards uh, the Lake King area, and then up through the um, Southern Cross and out uh, to just east of Mekathera, or sorry, just west of Mekathera, we'll be looking at 30 to 50 mils. Isolated falls to around 80, and then around the Esperance region, uh, generally about 10 to 30 mils. Isolated falls up to about uh, 50 mils. Uh, so, so basically, uh, the wheat belt. It looks like they're going to get some pretty good rainfall from this eastern parts of the Great Southern, especially out towards uh, Hyden. Uh, Lake King area, and then um, mainly inland from from Esperance, uh, so, so sort of north of Ravenstorp. That looks like the area that's going to see the heaviest rainfall, but uh, we do expect to see at least some rainfall associated with the system all the way to the Midwest coast and uh, into parts of the Great Southern, and um, probably just to the, the north and east of Perth, so areas like Gingin and in the Perth Hills, we'll probably see at least uh, a little bit of rainfall associated with this. Well, wow, Bob, if that comes true, that we've some very happy people uh, from the top of the state to actually right down in the south. Thank you for going through those details. I appreciate it. Yeah, it's all right. 22 to 1 here on the Country Hour. And due to the risk of a fire, a total fire ban has been issued for some shires in the outer Perth metro region. So that's Armadale, Chittering, Gosnells, Calamunda, Mundaring, Serpentine, Jarradale and Swan. In the goldfields, 2J has a total fire ban in place. In the southwest, the shires of Collie, Dardanup, Harvey, Murray, Waruna and Donnybrook bailing up all have total fire bans in place. During a total fire ban, no lighting fires for cooking or camping, no hot work such as grinding or welding, no off-road use of four-wheel drives, quad bikes or motorbikes. And remember, it is your responsibility to check with your local shire if they've issued a harvest and vehicle movement ban, as this means you can't use off-road vehicles even for industry or agricultural reasons. There's more about what you can and can't do during a total fire ban and also a map of the areas on the Emergency WA website. 
Checking the rainfall figures now. So I'll look back at the last 24 hours to 9 o'clock this morning and checking five mils and over. It's all in the Kimberley. Broome Airport, eight. Country Downs, 36. Curtin Aero, five. And Debessa, also five in the gauge. Derby Aero, nine. Diggers Rest, eight. Emma Gorge, seven. Gib River, five. Kachana, 25. Columbaroo, 12. Kununurra Aero had 13. Lake Argyle Resort, 9. Lombardina Aero, 33. Napier Downs, 15. Thedda, 40. Troughton Island, 5. Truscott, 14. Udiella had 10. And Yampi Sound had 8. 20 minutes to 1. Well, farmers in the Salmon Gums region have been brushing up on their sheep skills after being called upon to help with stranded livestock. Now, that's because the main route across the Nullarbor, the Air Highway, has been closed due to a bushfire. A watch and act is still in place for people travelling along Air Highway near Balladonia Roadhouse in the Shire of Dundas. And the roadhouse itself is about 220 kilometres east of Norseman. Sam Starsevich and her family farm south of there, about 120 k's north of Esperance. She says most farms in her area got out of sheep a few years ago, but today the yards are full of sheep again. Yesterday afternoon, we got a few calls from um, people in the in the sheep industry, just saying that the air highway had been closed due to fire. And um, soon as we still had the sheep yard set up, was it possible that we could uh, take some sheep for a night or two or three, depending on how long the roads closed for? And I understand that all of the sheep were offloaded um, a little bit into into dark. This was really, I suppose, a a call for for help for anybody. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, so we. We ended up with about 1,490, I think, here, um, two road trains and, yeah, a few other farmers um, around the Salmon Gums area took the others. And as you say, you, you still have sheep infrastructure in place, as many do around the region, but they're not used all that much these days. No, they're not. It's been uh, two years since, well, just over two years, I think, since we got rid of our merinos. We still had some crossies, but they were out on one of the other properties. So the fat Kelpie got a workout. Um, he jumped straight up into the truck and absolutely loved it. Um, he was buggered last night. I think he snored louder than anyone last night. So, um, no, but it was good. But good to be able to help out, as usual, you know, yeah. So you're expecting to have the sheep there for a couple of days. I think DFES is expecting the highway to be closed for about three days. So so what do you do with the sheep now? We know that you're obviously very heavily involved with farmers across borders, so you, you have access to some fodder potentially, which is a good thing. I, yeah, I did. I was talking to someone from the department yesterday. I did say, look, if they're here for more than 24 hours, then getting some straw won't be an issue. Um, yeah, so we'll get onto that today. Um, we'll possibly have to get some water carted because it is quite ironic that they come to the town and to the farms with no water at the moment. Um, so, yeah, we'll work out some troughs and um, make sure they've got plenty of water and feed. And, yeah, so that'll be today's um, task. <laughs> As you say, those water declarations um, came into effect earlier this week. So quite a time for, for those who, who are managing sheep in the area, whether they're their own or they're the visitors that have uh, stopped by for a few days. What does it mean to, to be able to, to help out in situations like this, Sam? 
I don't know. I don't think we even thought about it when we got the call. We were just like, oh, bugger, we better go and work out those yards because my pet pig was actually lives in them. So got her out of the way and, yeah, you just, you just do it, don't you? Sam and Gums Farmer, Sam Stasevich, speaking to Tara DeLandcraft. You can stay up to date with the bushfire, which has closed the air highway by tuning into ABC Goldfields, Esperance and keeping an eye on the emergency WA website. That highway is closed between Norseman and Kaiguna. People travelling west of Belladonia will be redirected towards Norseman. Belladonia Road has been impacted by fire and is closed and there is no access via Parmango Road in the south and these roads may be closed for several days. Well, staying in the area where Dave Vandenberg runs a mixed sheep and cropping business in the Esperance Shire, farming at Salmon Gums, Grass Patch, Scadden and Gibson. As you heard here on the Country Hour yesterday and just mentioned again, there is a water deficiency declaration that's just been announced for Grass Patch in the Shire of Esperance. Dave, how would you describe the seasonal conditions across the Shire? Look, it's very mixed. There's some areas which have a little water from from storms they've they've managed to get under, but in general, most people we talk to, they're very low on water or or run out. And in fact, some people have have been completely out of water since January. It's sort of been a very mixed season in that the coast was quite wet as you went inland. The rainfall certainly tapered off pretty quick in a lot of areas. In fact, some of them, um, you know, were well below. 200 mil for the year, which is, you know, potentially less than half of what they should get. So those guys are struggling. Probably the the main reason why there's not more noise being made is because the, the amount of livestock which has left that, that northern region, it's not as much as a problem if you don't have livestock. David, is it typical or is it usual that this sort of region gets one of these uh, water deficiency declarations? It's not usually the case. Probably the last four or five years, it's been a lot more common as we've just had quite a few dry years and, and, and a real lack of our summer rainfall, which is you know, generally we would be guaranteed to get a cyclone at least every second year or, or some sort of rain event in the summer, which would you know top up them them dams and it's not so crucial that that winter rainfall but Samingums is probably a bit more hit and miss with with water deficiency because there's a lot of areas up there which can't get the depth for dams so they tend to be a little more risky um, and rely on more frequent storms and, and rains. Well obviously we've got this system in the north of the state, uh, ex-tropical cyclone Lincoln, which looks like going off coast, reforming into a cyclone and coming back to the to cross the Western Australian coast, how hopeful are you of that tracking down your way to get some, some sort of rainfall? Well, it would be fantastic if it did. I think it's a very watched um, system at the moment amongst the farmers, but I think there's still a fair bit of uncertainty about it and We've sort of lost a little bit of confidence in, in summer rain and until it happens again, people become more positive toward it. But at this stage, everyone's looking and open. Now, obviously, you would be one of those people looking really anxiously at that system and hoping for some rain because you've got quite a lot of sheep on your property running a, a merino stud. What are the numbers and how are you managing the seasonal conditions, Dave? We've probably got about 10,000 at the moment. Oh, look, we've got 
probably a third of them out on adjustment. We've destocked a couple of farms completely because um, there's no water. I guess we're condensing them up into feedlotting and, and areas around what water we have. But like if we get a, another late break like we have the last two years, it, it won't look pretty. How challenging is it finding adjustment these days? Oh, very, and I'm very grateful for the adjustment I have. But look, there's a lot of um, infrastructure which is no longer, no longer on on properties like fencing and and, and water, uh, even yards, and and you know people don't want livestock, they don't want the hassle. So yeah, it's becoming a bit of a challenge. It is expensive to maintain fences and and time consuming. And look, if you're not, you know, if you're not doing that little bit all the time, it it seems like a very big task all of a sudden to, you know, replace 20 or 30 kilometres of fencing and you think, you know, what, what for? To adjust some sheep, so it's probably easier for them just to not do it. Um, although those that, that choose to allow sheep on their property, you know, they get good weed control and and clean up a bit of grain on the way. Are you carting water at, at your place? We carted water for about probably two months and then we destocked that farm. So. We're not yet, but as we, you know, as we roll closer to lambing and we can't move stock around as much, you know, we're, we're certainly going to have to unless something happens, which any day that all could change. Is it difficult to find a market for your sheep right now? Look, it has been, and that's part of part of one of our problems. Is is you know a few a few options dried up with live export and and the the backlog of processing sheep. People haven't been able to get rid of their older sheep, so most people are carrying a few more than than what they were would have liked into the summer. I mean, the idea is to offload as many as you can coming into summer. They just haven't been able to sell them, and that really is still remaining difficult. It's possible to get rid of finished lambs, but can't just ring up and make a you know get them in next week. You you might be five weeks from from getting them in if you're lucky. We've heard about the figures for January with so many, in particular, sheep heading from Western Australia to the eastern states. Uh, numbers huge going across the border for January, over 100,000 head of sheep. Is, have you taken that option? Uh, look, we haven't. We've sort of sold our lambs to, you know, locally. But I'm often on the highway and it's just one truck after another. So that only usually means one thing is that, in the near distance, we'll we'll be we'll be short of processing sheep in WA. So, you know, I could see the prices sort of going up again, which which would be good. So you're you're staying in the industry, by the sounds. Uh, we've made it more use than ever. I'm not sure if it's madness or or optimism. I don't know, but um, somewhere in between there. How hot has it been your way in this part of Western Australia, just off the south coast? Um, well, yesterday was. Yeah, fairly ordinary. Um, I think we were up to sort of probably 47 or 48 on farm. That did not cool down until, well, it was was over 40 again today. But we haven't had uh, probably as bad a run as the wheat belt. But, um, you know, when it's 47 or 8 down here, it's, it's pretty ordinary for dams and for animals and for anything that's trying to survive out there. How are the, the sheep holding up in terms of the welfare? Uh-huh. Oh, look, the sheep look good, but the, the problem is um, as the dams get low, the, the water temperature rises and the quality of the water drops and, of course, your evaporation rises as well with that warmer water. 
But look, they're all in pretty good order. Um, my chooks, not so. But anyway, that's another story. What happened to the chooks? Oh, I was too hot. I think we lost at least half a dozen or something. Yeah, well, I'm sorry to hear that. So, I mean, you need rain. That's that's the bottom well, line here, isn't it? Of, that would solve a, a lot of problems. Um, and look, I'm, I'm confident it'll, it'll, every day it's a bit closer, so it'll happen soon. We don't, we're not going to keep having dry summers. Um, it's, it's quite unusual. Dave, good to talk to you. Okay, thank you. Bye. Dave Vandenberg, farming in the Esperance Shire, 8 to 1. Well, it's no secret WA's nickel industry is in the middle of a crisis. This year, a number of mines have closed and hundreds of jobs have been lost. And now mining giant BHP is saying in the coming months it's going to make a decision on the future of its Nickel West division, which includes the Kalgoorlie Nickel Smelter, Cambelda Nickel Concentrator and mines at Leinster and Mount Keith in the northern goldfields. BHP Chief Executive Mike Henry says he's fully aware that this is an uncertain time for all of the workers. Unfortunately, it does create a, a period of uncertainty for um, the 3,000 plus people that, that are employed at Nickel West, as well as all of those employed by businesses that depend on Nickel West. And so we are uh, taking our communications around this very seriously, uh, and we want to bring certainty to, to uh, the question as quick as practically possible. But I would note that unlike some other players in the industry who've already moved into care and maintenance because they have a simpler uh, business, we also have smelting and, and refine, uh, smelting, uh, smelter and refinery at Nickel West. In fact, the only nickel smelting and refining capacity in, in Australia. And there's uh, greater technical considerations in how we would go about moving into care and maintenance and preserve the option to come out of care and maintenance in due course for that sort of operation. So it's something that we have to be very deliberate about. But I acknowledge the uncertainty that this creates for thousands of people and therefore we're moving this forward at, uh, at, uh, at pace and we'll provide that certainty as soon as we, as we possibly can. BHP CEO Mike Henry speaking on the ABC's business program. Federal member for O'Connor Rick Wilson has been in the goldfields this week speaking with community leaders about what a potential closure could mean for the region. It's, it's impacting the communities uh, very heavily. Uh, towns like Linster, which rely almost entirely on uh, Nickel West for the town's existence. Um, BHP own all the houses in town. You don't get to live in Linster unless you're either working for Nickel West or you're contracting to them. So we're seeing, uh, you know, this growing, I guess, snowballing effect of, uh, you know, some of the big players pulling out, which is putting the viability of the nickel smelter and, and perhaps some of the smaller operations at risk. And um, look, it's it's a very serious situation. Uh, the cost uh, base of our nickel producers compared to our international competitors seems to have uh, blown out considerably in the last few years. I mean, you know, three years ago, sixteen thousand US dollars a tonne for nickel was a pretty good price. Um, today, uh, you know, we need twenty thousand dollars US a tonne for nickel to be viable. Apparently, so um, uh, you know, the government, both at state and federal level, need to look at the you know what they can do uh, to reduce the cost imposts on our nickel producers because if we lose them, uh, then all the talk of you know being a battery superpower and you know being able to produce nickel, cobalt, and uh, lithium uh, to drive a, a domestic battery industry uh, is, is going to go out the window as well. So there's a lot at stake here. I mean, obviously, the most important people to me are those you know, workers in those communities and their families that uh, may be faced with uh, you know, losing their jobs, which will mean, in some cases, relocating. 
means the communities uh, lose those great people in their in their towns. Uh, here in Kalgoorlie, we've got the nickel smelter with 300 uh, permanent and residential-based employees that uh, you know hopefully would be absorbed into other businesses, but those special you, skills. You mentioned, yeah, the smelter have been running for 50-odd years now, but BHP said that in the coming months they're going to make that call. Are you wanting that, whether it's good news or bad, that decision sooner rather than later? So, so people have that certainty? That's what I'm hearing, and certainly I spoke to um, the Lee Norris shy yesterday about... Uh, uh, you know what they'd like to see, and they they very much of the view that this uncertainty is is going to kill the community regardless. So, make a decision and get on with it rather than drag it out over uh, several months. So I did meet with representatives of BHP here in Kalgoorlie yesterday, and they couldn't give us uh, you know any sort of firm indication of when the decision might be made. Now, the federal government in recent days have placed nickel onto the critical minerals list, so that gives companies like BHP access to a $4 billion critical minerals fund and potential financing. And then the WA government has given some royalty relief. Is that enough or is that going to get the job done to keep the, the doors open? Well, look, I think um, you know, the CEO, well, I know the CEO of BHP, Mike Henry, has come out and said they don't want subsidies. So and the BHP people we spoke to yesterday were a bit bemused about what the, what the critical minerals fund actually meant for the business, I mean, a direct subsidy or tax credits, but if your business is not making a profit, then there's no point getting a tax credit. Um, well, so there's no tax to pay if it, you're making a loss. So. That, that's right, and uh, on current projections, uh, you know, the business is not going to make a profit for some time, so that's kind of meaningless. The other, the holiday on uh, royalties that the state government has promised, I'm trying to find out some detail where that means, uh, so the, the proposal is that when the price reaches 20,000 US dollars a tonne again, then they pay royalties. But they've got to pay the royalties back that they've had a holiday on. But what if the price never gets back to over 20,000 US dollars a tonne? Uh, does that mean that the liability stays on the books of the company forever? I mean, these are these are the sort of questions that uh, I think we need more clearer answers to. Um, the Prime Minister, Anthony Albanese, has been in Perth this week. We haven't heard really any significant... Um, announcements uh, to to address the nickel um, crisis. What do you, what's your thought sort of take on where, what the federal government should be doing? Well, firstly, I think the prime minister and Madeline King, the resources minister, should have visited the goldfields this week. Um, you know, he was in Western Australia. He flew over the top of Kalgoorlie in his RAAF jet. It wouldn't have been a big thing for him to to call in the Kalgoorlie and at least just be here to support the community. Um, I have publicly said that uh, I think the safeguard mechanism could be. Uh, removed or exempted uh, for Nickel West or actually all the nickel b- businesses across the gold fields. This is the safeguard mechanism uh, is to force companies to lower their emissions by around 5% per annum uh, over the next 10 years and, and Nickel West is one of those businesses. All three of their, the mine, the, the smelter and also the Quinana smelter are caught up in that and also the Marin Marin operation of Glencore are caught up under the safeguard mechanism. Now that could potentially add between 60 and $170 million cost to that business over the next 10 years. Now, they are competing directly with uh, Indonesian nickel producers who have no requirement to reduce emissions. In fact, Indonesia's coal usage last year, mainly on the back of this uh, high-intensive nickel processing, went up 32%. So the safeguard mechanism, which is meant to reduce uh, emissions, may actually see nickel production move offshore from Australia to very high emitting competitors overseas and I just think that's insanity. 
Liberal MP Rick Wilson speaking to Jared Lucas about the current crisis facing WA's nickel industry. Uh, the Mount Barker cattle market is a two-day sale, so all the details on that tomorrow. Of course, a look at the wool market for the week too with Danny Burkett. Good to talk to you today. The news is next. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.